0: If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Joshua Shrai, creator of the Emerald podcast. On the Emerald, Josh explores many aspects of human experience through a unique and artful interweaving of myth, poetry, music, conversation, and personal reflection. I feel a lot of kinship with Josh and find that we are often exploring the same ground around the same time. My 2018 YouTube documentary, The Shamanic Roots of Yoga, is similar in form to what Josh does with the Emerald, combining voiceover commentary with music and scriptural references, and it touches on a topic that he later covered in an episode on the shamanic third chapter of the Yoga Sutras. In fact, I initially found out about his podcast when that episode came out and people started messaging me saying, hey, you should check out this guy. He's interested in some of the same things you are. Well, I'm glad I finally got to meet him and have this conversation. To me, it's evidence that men don't have to be in competition with each other, and that actually if we can relax our egos and appreciate each other, we discover, often to our surprise and delight, that male colleagues can be a source of camaraderie, support, and inspiration. Josh is a fellow musician, teacher, and lifelong explorer of stories, scripture, and spiritual practice, which made for a rich and enlightening conversation about how his unconventional upbringing and early interest in storytelling, music, and theater were the seeds for what has unexpectedly grown into a meaningful livelihood as writer, teacher, and podcast creator. Now, if you'd like to support this podcast and gain access to early release of episodes and the full podcast archives, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. I forgot to ask you before we started. uh, How do you pronounce your last name? Is it Shry? Yeah, Shry. Yeah, you got it right. Rare. Okay. Okay, well, I'm here with Josh Shry, creator of the Emerald Podcast. Welcome.
1: Hey, nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm kind of hoping to find out a little more about the the man behind the podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I've been listening uh, probably close to when it started. I think, mm. um, somebody directed me to it because in 2018, I'd done a short documentary on YouTube called the shamanic roots of yoga. Mm. And, um, I think, you know, a year or so after you put out a podcast exploring the third book of, uh, Patanjali's yoga sutra, uh, and talking about this kind of correlation between yoga and shamanism, uh, yeah. and somebody was like, Hey, this guy's onto it too. You should check him out. Um, <laughs> because I don't know if there's like so many people really going deeply into that um, mm. whole discussion, but uh, yeah. And then I started listening and um, I just uh, found a lot of resonance with the topics you cover. Often it reflects things that I'm exploring at the same time. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I feel like a lot of kinship with what you're doing out there. Mm.
1: Thank you. But, and
0: likewise. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it feels good to know that you're not alone and uh, wondering about these things, you know, and uh, I think, you know, wondering deeply, like going into kind of deep study on some of these topics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a joy through the podcast to realize how many people synchronize and harmonize with this particular way of exploring the world and uh, didn't know when I started it. I mean, I knew that there was probably a growing number. Of people looking to reconnect to a living world and um, explore those deep roots that you're talking about, but it's been a joy to see just how many and how that's growing. And I think I think it's indicative of like a deep longing that people are feeling in this in this day and age.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about your background. Did you um go to university for anthropology or ethnography or religious studies or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so you're honing in on the topic that I talk the least about, which is the the man behind the podcast. I, I generally like like to talk about, you know, um ecology and myth and the natural forces all around around us and I try to shift the lens away from me a little bit, but I I mean I'm happy to share um you know, I'm an interesting case because I actually didn't go to college at all. I uh, I grew up in practice traditions. So I'm approaching all of this, not from the Western academic perspective, but as someone who was raised, immersed in, in practice. And so what that looked like is I spent my childhood in a Zen Buddhist community. And I lived with my family for a time in India where I got a early deep dive into the Indian mythic traditions and lived at various ashrams and centers there. And this was quite a while ago um, before that was a popular thing to do (laughs) and um, went from there to study in high school, like Taoist and Lakota traditions and Tibetan Buddhism in a serious way, Tantra for many years. And so you know the exploration when I encountered um, what you could call like the increasing scholarly approach to to myth, the increasing scholarly approach to understanding it, and um, anthropological terms on the one hand, psychological terms on the other hand. Um, my deep feeling, because I don't have a background in Western academia, my deep feeling was that something was missing. And generally, what I felt was missing was the actual breath of life itself, (laughs) the actual animacy itself, the fact that these aren't abstractions. They're not words that live on a page that are meant to be analyzed. You know, when you look at how myth was historically and is still practiced in certain traditions. How it is so intertwined with ritual, so intertwined with felt experience in the body, so intertwined with communal enactment. I wanted to see if I could help, uh, you know, rekindle the spark a little bit and provoke people to examine the mythic as a living force that still lives and breathes and has application in our world today and is alive and well and pulsing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: That's, that's a little bit of how I came to it.
0: Yeah. Well, I can, I can relate to that as well. And that maybe explains some of the resonance I feel with your approach. Um, uh, I, I came to the, the deeper study of these things, um, through practice as well, like trying to understand the experiences I had in practice, mm. um, and trying to understand how to integrate some of those experiences that I'd had in shamanic traditions or the yogic tradition with my everyday Western life and psychology. Um, I often felt at times there was a split in me between the uh, side that was um, just in the experience uh, and then the side that would try to explain or analyze the experience. And Mm -hmm. I saw this as kind of a split between the modern mind and the mythic mind. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was really um, depth psychology and the work of people like uh, Hillman, uh, Thomas Moore was really helpful uh, in helping me bridge those kind of two minds or, or mindsets or worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I come to it through, uh, practice as well. And was often frustrated when I'd read academic or scholarly work on, you know, like Mercia Iliadi's shamanism. I was like, this guy's never d- done shamanism before, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it always seemed like a real kind of removed outsider perspective. And, uh, I found it quite lacking, uh, mm-hmm so um i mean your parents sound like really interesting people that's a big difference between us because i come from a a kind of very secular working class um background uh but it sounds like your parents were involved in some really interesting things like who are they or who were who were they
1: um they uh you know in the late 1960s at a time when many people were seeking they discovered zen buddhism and specifically the teachings of Roshi Philip Kaplow, who uh, wrote a book called The Three Pillars of Zen, which was kind of instrumental in bringing Zen to the United States. And he started a center in upstate New York, and they found it uh, very early on. My mom started practicing probably when she was about 20. um, And my dad, maybe a little bit older. Um, But they were what you could call like serious spiritual seekers. They were spiritual seekers you know before it was popular to be a spiritual seeker before you could uh make money being a spiritual seeker before it was like a career path and instagrammable career path right they they did it to address um you know what they saw to be like a crisis in the world and a crisis in their own lives and they became practitioners and so you know, and <laughs> there were, you know, challenges to that upbringing. They it issued all like material comforts. And so we grew up dirt poor, traveling around the world and practicing at various spiritual centers. Um, but there was also just a, a really deep, deep foundation in the, in the power of community and in the power of practice and in the power of study, but not just study as an abstract study is something that is eventually meant to be woven into the tissues and and embodied. And yeah. And my dad's been a somatic practitioner for years and years and years and years. He does healing work and, um, they've been deeply involved in kind of, um, alternative visions of, you know, Lineage practice, but also alternative visions of health and and wellness, um, well before the the wellness craze. So, if you hear me on the podcast making you know certain editorial commentary about the wellness craze and about marketplace spirituality, you know it's because I've been immersed in it in my entire life, and I've I've seen the genuine, and I've seen what it's become, and I saw the original iteration of the New Age movement back in the late 1980s, and um, what that spun out into. And, um, you know, uh, that's the, the place I'm commenting from when I, when I comment on what I see going on in the, in the spiritual world today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from, uh, the Zen, um, I guess you would call it a monastery in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Zen can be so clean and tidy to (laughs) the kind of the messy, chaotic uh, Indian tradition and moving to India. Uh, Mm -hmm. What brought that about that shift?
1: My parents went to Asia um, for an extended period of time to visit all the holy sites and to study with various teachers. And for me, it came right at that critical age when I was just passing into teenagerhood and waking up to you know um a whole variety of adolescent forces and you know at a very initiatory time in one's life and yeah all of a sudden my world was blown wide open from the clean monastic halls uh i was just thinking about this yesterday because uh there was a uh article about how like the women's world cup japan team like tidy their lockers like after they play to like the you know to to the point of absolute perfection and everything like that and I was thinking about wow like you know I really grew up in this in this like kind of Japanese practice environment that was so orderly and then in India that was blown wide open and I found you know it was a um explosion of color and light and sound and chanting and um, stories mm-hmm. and animal beings and uh, mythic forces and serpents. And um, it just, as someone who always loved story, cause I was raised on it, it just, it just blew my world wide open. I mean, I started studying Tibetan language and Sanskrit that year when we were over there and um yeah it was a it was a major transition into a a larger animate world and and india is a place where um you know the animate forces are articulated and interact with and interacted with and spoken about and sung to and there's a, a rhythm and a pulse of interaction with the animate um, that goes well beyond kind of the vision of just maybe people chanting to abstract deities. It, 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 uh, takes root in village traditions of spirit possession and this kind of thing. And it's something that's very visible and very tangible and very alive and very present. Um. So, you know, in Indian, Indian tradition, there's no, there's no doubt about the fact that the myths live in the body and that ultimately there's, meant to be some type of practice of embodiment around all these stories, right? Mm -hmm. So then when I, that really formed the basis of like the somatic way that I view myth, because later when I encountered Greek myth and I saw, you know, the beautiful, like psychological work of people like Marie-Louise von Franz and this kind of thing, who, you know, analyzed Greek myth from a personal perspective. And then I saw like the classics majors analyzing it from, you know, a whole other perspective. I just felt like something's, something's missing, like something's missing here. There, the, the life breath of practice, this was embodied in practice. All the Greek myths were embodied in ritual practice, right? They were embodied in festivals and ceremonies and um, the gods didn't live far off and away and weren't meant to simply be analyzed or even to be felt as just individual psychological forces, right, the gods were interacted with as the living forces of nature. So India, I think, at a very young age really opened my my eyes and my heart and my skin and my bones to, to that.
0: Mm-hmm. And then moving to the United States. <laughs> and, I mean back to the States, I guess. Returning yeah. to the States. Um, you guys ended up in the southwest in New Mexico or
1: Yeah. Um I mean, you know. It's up to you how long we want to talk about my life story, but <laughs> it's funny. I, I don't, you know, I don't usually spend a huge amount of time talking about myself and these types of interviews and I get a little shy about it. Um, yeah. We landed back in the Southwest United States where I went to high school and um, you know, we came back from India. We ended up in Bodh India at a time when the Dalai Lama was there. And of course this was before, like you could look on the internet and figure out what his schedule was and where he was going to be. It was a total surprise that we happened to land there when he did. And so I encountered Tibetan Tantra at a very young age at um, my early teen years. Um, And just, I had an encounter um, with him and his entourage and retinue and like, you know, speaking of kind of a transition from Zen Buddhism, it was just so, it was a Buddhism, but it was such a different Buddhism. It was a Buddhism, you know, Zen Buddhism is steeped in animacy also. There are many, many animate forces at play in Zen Buddhism and Shintoism is alive and well in Zen Buddhism. But in Tibetan Buddhism, it's more like right up front and the practices themselves are engagement with these forces and deities. And it's so colorful and bright and um, I just felt a heart connection to it immediately. So I practiced and studied Zen Buddhism all throughout high school and into my, or Tibetan Buddhism all throughout high school and into my early 20s. Um, and at the same time, I had a good friend here who was practicing the Lakota path with a Lakota teacher. And he was doing sweat lodge ritual. And um, so we did weekly sweat lodge rituals and studied the Lakota path with with his teacher. And that was really formative in my animate worldview also. Um, New Mexico is a place where, you know, it's very influenced by um, the Native American traditions that are still deeply, deeply rooted here and deeply rooted, although there's been obviously colonization and all kinds of problems from that. The Pueblos are still deeply rooted on their ancestral land, and they still perform the ceremonies that they've been performing for however long and you can feel that in the land here Hmm. the land here is it's honored and it's recognized and it's uh sung to and um it's vibrant and alive and that shaped my animate worldview too early experiences i had with the land in new mexico i talk about it a little bit in A recent episode, which was called Inanimate Objects Aren't Inanimate or Objects, right? Mm -hmm. I talk about an experience of being out among the stones and just having no doubt at all that the stones were watching and listening. And anyone who's gotten into the deep desert, far enough away from your electronic devices and all the distractions of the world that you can really start to listen. If you start to listen close, you will start to hear something among the stones, you'll, you'll start to hear something. So the land here was a huge influence on, on me, not simply the traditions I studied, though I studied and practiced, um, diligently and regularly, uh, you know, throw in a little teenage psychedelic use and, um, it's a recipe for opening up to a world of, of animacy. Mm -hmm. and. I think the land here continues to shape and form the the work that I do.
0: Mm. so not so much uh, a culture shock coming back you have you kind of found uh a place where this animate worldview animate life could continue and mm. um be supported by local traditions and and things mm. like that, yeah.
1: Yeah. And there, you know, Santa Fe is a, I mean, it was a culture shock coming back. <laughs> it was definitely a culture shock because that, that time that we were in India was like the bridge for me between childhood and adolescence really. And so to come back to high school, I mean, I remember drawing like images of Shiva and like Sanskrit lettering and stuff in my high school class while everyone else is like big hair and listening to Metallica and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a shock. Um, but I found, you know, Santa Fe is a place where, um, you know, these types of traditions have taken root over years and years and years. It's one of the places that spiritual teachers landed very early on in the United States. So there is a Kargu lineage Tibetan practice center out here. And I helped build the stupa when I was 15 years old and helped paint the inside of it and practiced there for, for many years. And, um, good grounding in, in, excuse me, good grounding in practice community. Um, And that really held me during those years when, you know, our family life was kind of disrupted because my parents left the spiritual center that they had been associated with for so long. And, um, you know, kind of found themselves in the world with no money and nothing to do and wondering what was next. Um, as is the case of many people who spend years and years and years in spiritual community and devote their lives to it. Um, and, uh, you know, don't think about things like materiality while they're doing it. You know, when I was 14, 15 and we came back from Asia, um, they were having to reinvent their lives completely. And, uh, What gave me foundation and anchor was practice and community and nature. Those were the things. Time, time in the wilderness, Tibetan practice, Lakota practice. uh, The sweat lodge practice was a huge, huge help for me when, when I was a kid. Taught me how to pray, which I think is, you know, in, in, obviously in Buddhist traditions, there are prayers, but it's a different kind of prayer. It's not steeped in the honey nectars of devotion in the same way and for me I discovered through the sweat lodge I, I felt it in India when we lived there I felt the bhava I felt the the devotion but the sweat lodge really taught me like how to pray how to ask in that deeply like beautiful tender illuminated state that comes from being in there with the steam and the rocks and having to let go and surrender a little bit and then the prayers just start flowing. Um, it taught me, it taught me a lot about how to, how to pray and how to, how to be in good relation with larger forces. You know, the larger, the larger forces aren't abstract. Again, the larger forces are real and there are simple, simple ways to feel them and acknowledge them and bring them into our lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, a ritual, that empties you out and kind of uh thrusts you out onto the precipice will have a way of opening the door of the heart to true authentic prayer Mm. yeah i've said the same thing myself like that sweat lodge taught me how to pray like Mm. the prayer from the heart not Mm. the um kind of scripted memorized mantra or something you know like like the plea to the god or the divine um Yeah. And like coming out of like the humility, you know, that first moment getting on your hands and knees and crawling through the hole uh, where everybody's kind of equalized and then everybody's kind of going through it together. You know, it's incredible ritual.
1: And if you're in a really hot one, (laughs) I remember uh, being in at the reservation, the Lakota reservation in Cheyenne river, South Dakota. Uh, We were there for the Sundance and I was 20, I was about to turn 21, 20 years old and came in there like I'd been doing sweat lodge for years and came in there kind of like, you know, maybe with a little bit of 20 year old attitude and everything like that. And within five minutes, the water that they poured on the rocks, I was like face down on the ground, like trying to get my mouth to a place where the ground was like cool and I could breathe. And yeah, the prayers came easily that day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but those types of experiences that you're you know that you're talking about like that's essential to ritual you know ritual isn't just scripted performative there's scripted performative aspects of it right that to kind of set the container and everything but there's always some form in traditional ritual of taking us to the edge And that could be as simple as like, oh, the ritual is 12 hours long and you have to sit in one place and it's going to be entirely uncomfortable, right? It can be simple as that discomfort. It could be the like taking to the edge that something like the sweat lodge does. It could be a dance that lasts 36 hours, you know, but there's going to be something that is going to take you to the place where you can't control the situation anymore. And you have to one way or another, aligned to something greater
0: Mm -hmm. right
1: that it's not your strength of will that's going to get you through at that point it's actually letting that crumble crumble and and letting yourself be regrown by larger forces
0: yeah well you say letting as if you have some choice in the matter (laughs) (laughs) well you can resist
1: for as long as you want right you know yeah you you could try to put up a fight i mean you know and it reminds me of like entheogenic work, but like you,
0: you can you can try and resist. <laughs> <You> try. <laughs> but I think like the good uh, like ritual leader will know when to turn up the heat or up the dose or you mm-hmm. know uh, turn up the volume on the chants so, and you know to build a sense when you're you're holding on or you're you know you're full of hubris and you're acting like, uh, you've got it all under control. Mm. (laughs) I mean, that might be a good distinction between, um, ceremony and ritual, you know, Mm. like ceremony being that kind of, uh, extroverted form, uh, that's scripted and and done to uphold, uh, some aspect of the culture or society. Whereas the ritual is more about breaking all that shit down. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's an accurate, uh, distinction or not, but it kind of makes sense to me. I don't know. Yeah. I
1: think, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define it semantically, but I think that there is a distinction between, um, you know, performative repetition that doesn't take you to the edge and performative repetition that thrusts you into the mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, and ultimately I think human beings long, for that enacted communal repetitive access to the mystery, I think we long. When I was mentioning just earlier, kind of a you know a deep longing that we have. I think we long to be broken down. I think we long to have that experience of shattering, um, because as we're regrown, we're we're not regrown alone necessarily. We're regrown in alignment to something else and you know traditionally that's communal regrowing um but it's also regrowing to the larger ecology of natural forces and the movement of the seasons and the movement of the celestial bodies and the great cycles and rhythms all around us like we go through life at one pace and rhythm and i have i have to check myself continually throughout my day just to calibrate and say okay is the, the pace at which I'm approaching this, is this the natural pace of this day? Is this the pace of what's actually going on around me? Or is this, uh, am I, as they say in, in music terms, ahead of the one, right? <laughs> like you don't want your drummer to be ahead of the one, right? Modern culture is ahead of the one. Like modern culture is, is, is rushing to get somewhere. And I think those of us like in this world needs need to constantly recalibrate, constantly recalibrate the, the rhythm, the internal rhythms and the communal rhythms to be more in alignment with great rhythms around us.
0: Mm-hmm. Be in the pocket. Yeah. Be in the
1: pocket. Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, you finished <laughs> high school with this uh, really <laughs> unique <laughs> upbringing <laughs> I mean, and you have to enter into the world. Mm. You don't hide out in academia, but you've got (laughs) to go out into the world. So how do you start making your living?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really start making a living until like last year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Patreon.
1: (laughs) really seriously gratitude finally to like be able to work on this stuff full time and feel supported in it. And yeah, deep gratitude for that. I, you know, (laughs) I, um, I mean, you know, my life is an intricate spiral of journeying and wandering (laughs) and, and so we can, we could talk about it, but it would take, you know, a lot of the time.
0: Okay. Well, let me be, let me be more direct maybe to help you out. Uh, did you start, um, teaching? Uh, I got the sense from some of your podcasts that you might've taught some yoga along the way.
1: Oh yeah. I taught yoga, but that was more recently. That was more recently than my, uh, than those early years. So parallel to this track of all of this spiritual practice and spiritual seeking was a deep love of performance and music. Um, Mm And those two things traditionally, obviously go together, right? Um, And I didn't know that at the time. And this is an interesting part of the whole journey that I've had to be on is to come to understand like in myself, like the longing for ecstasy, the longing for devotion, the music, the theater, the spiritual practice, these things are all ultimately one urge. This Mm -hmm. is one longing, a longing for rapture and a longing for the architecture that allows us to experience rapture but i didn't know that at the time so i sought rapture in many 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 different ways i sought it through spiritual practice i also went through a time which i think was deeply important when i got disillusioned with spiritual community you know i grew up at a time when like the osho scene was in full swing up there in oregon when I had friends who grew up there, I had friends who grew up in Trungpa's scene in, in, uh, at um, Shambhala. You know, I had friends who grew up in, with false gurus who got really screwed up by it. Um, my parents, the community that we lived at was different than those communities. There wasn't things like, you know, abuse and that kind of thing going on there, thank God. Um, but there were politics and my parents got like ousted because of politics. And so I developed, um, as I think is the story, you know, and part of the reason I think I comment on this on the podcast a lot is because I went through the kind of individualist pendulum swing rebound to spiritual community at a very early age. And this was quite a while ago at this point. Like I went through the, like, I'm just going to figure it out all for myself. And really it's all about me and we don't need hierarchy and we don't need structure and we don't need community anyway. Um, I went through that individualistic phase. And again, I think it was deeply important, Um, but it was only until I took kind of the individualism to its like eventual conclusion of loneliness and despair, right. That I finally was able to maybe be, Regrown into something more balanced between the two sides of the pendulum swing. And I see that struggle at play in the modern spiritual world and the spiritual marketplace immensely. I see a big reaction to the religious on on one side. And then I think that big reaction to the religious takes people into a place where, um, you know, what has been essential for human beings, which is communal architected access to rapture over time, um, gets lost entirely. And when that gets lost entirely, um, people are kind of left to to wander. And then they can think of any old thing and try and sell any old thing. And and here we are today, right? Mm-hmm. So I, um, I went through a, a phase where I questioned a lot of it. I still practiced a lot, but I questioned a lot of it. And parallel to that phase, I was involved in music and music production and concert production and with my love of Tibet and my love of music I found myself uh meeting some guys from a band called Beastie Boys and uh uh-huh. I ended up working with the Beastie Boys for seven years producing their Tibet benefits in the late 90s oh and wow yeah um this is ancient history for some
0: but uh, yeah. it's still, still pretty- for me
1: but it's still pretty cool. If you check out Tibetan freedom concert, you'll find uh, lots of documentary footage and you might even spot me as a young
0: lad running around (laughs) there. Um, What what a great uh, um, meeting of kind of your two worlds in a way, you know, mm -hmm. Um, that's wonderful. So you're, You're, uh, you're, let's go ahead.
1: Well, And eventually, you know, the podcast is what has helped me crystallize everything, which is the storytelling, the music, the mythology that I've always loved, the spiritual practice woven into something musical and experiential, Mm. um, you know, that can bring artistry to um, the spiritual inquiry and can bring spiritual inquiry to the artistry and hopefully help create a felt experience around it all. And so like for a very long time, I didn't know how um, like mythology, how storytelling, music, music production, writing on one hand, mythic study, which I've always been completely immersed in, in the middle and um, like spiritual practice and uh, kind of, insight and inquiry into the the state of the the modern spiritual world i had no idea how that like was all going to weave together um and it was really a long slow process to come to an understanding and Mm -hmm. really eventually i was just like i just need to story tell i just need to tell stories and see what happens and if you listen to early episodes of the podcast they're not as musical I started out thinking of it like, you know, on the storytelling side. And then I was like, Hey, I'm working in a music production interface here. And, and I love music (laughs) and, um, you know, I've played with the accompaniment of drone and storytelling, and I'm going to try to take this to the next level. Now I'm going to try to like, um, you know, over the past four years, it's just deepened into the musical, um, in, in quite a significant way. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank. I mean, thanks for teasing all this out of me. I, you know, I, it's not something that I really that have been asked about very much, and so uh, I hope it's I hope it's interesting for people. That, you know.
0: Well, who cares? It's interesting to me, and you know, I'm the one <laughs> <laughs> talking to you. I mean, it. It really. I mean, there's so many parallels in our life, L- like you. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And we understand our lives uh, as we like look back at the story and um I look back and go well yeah my spiritual practice started when I was 11 and I picked up the guitar Mm. and got so deeply immersed into it it was uh it was like an initiatory process of like practicing eight hours a day being completely obsessed learning how to read another language Mm. and translate that into sound and starting to have uh really strange dreams receiving melodies in my dreams and Going to my guitar teacher and saying, "How do, how do I play this? Or how do I turn this into a song?" You know, um, and not understanding at the time that had anything to do with um, spiritual life or, or the yearning for you know rapture, like as you say, uh, ecstasy. But getting up on stage and playing, um, feeling that without having words for it, because I didn't grow up in that kind of environment where. You know words like rapture and ecstasy were being tossed around i just knew that uh i felt free in those moments like all of my kind of personal history and anxieties and everything were gone in those moments and man once you've tasted that <laughs> it leaves a mark you know
1: right which is um, the classic definition of ecstasy i mean this is yeah
0: extasos. yeah Yeah. Um, And I I love, you know, I was wondering one of the things I was going to ask you based on uh, the growth of the podcast and the way that it's become more kind of production heavy, uh, more considered in that way is I was going to ask you if you had a background in music production. Um, So it's like, Oh yeah, of course. And Mm -hmm. like the podcast is the place where all this comes together, which Mm -hmm. is just, makes me so happy to hear because it's the thing in my coaching work that I'm always trying to help people find mm. is that place where all of their experiences their history their interests their passions all of that weaves together into a life mm. you know and hopefully a livelihood you know if 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 the gods are, are smiling upon us it will turn into an actual livelihood where we get some some payment right and we can pay the rent and all that So it's just, it's great to hear that, that it's worked Mm. out for you in that way.
1: Mm. Thank you. It's, I I just, I feel a lot of gratitude for like the people who are supporting the podcast and um, the fact that it's resonated and the fact that it's growing. I I feel really grateful because, you know, I um, I had a fairly deep, struggling, starving artist life for um, quite a long time, too. I mean, I worked in the music business to help offset it. um, But, you know, uh, it was a struggle for many, 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 many years, and not knowing, you know, exactly how to weave together um, all of these disparate, what I thought were disparate interests, yeah Mm -hmm. um it's just been a a real blessing and a and a joy to be able to focus on it and Mm -hmm. feel that it's actually resonating and and doing having good effect in the world
0: yeah um i had the the same feeling at a certain point um My wife and I started doing these circles where we would uh, play music and uh, lead people through a kind of a ritual, um, like a sound journey ritual. And she would bring in some herbal tinctures that she'd been cooking up in the kitchen. Um, I would bring in songs that I had learned from my different uh, travels. Uh, And at some point I realized like, oh, this is where the music and the spiritual practice and the... Um, creating like hosting people all of these things that I, I, I have had loved this is where it all comes together and it wasn't something that I could have ever projected into the future like someday I'm going to bring all of these things together and it's going to mm-hmm. feel like really integral and um, and like full and a culmination of all these wanderings uh, but it just happened yeah and, and it sounds like that was the case for you and so one of the things I just want to highlight for people is that um, I think this is the way it is. If you just keep following those threads in your life and, mm-hmm. and kind of keep them alive and keep uh, nurturing them, that at some point things will coalesce. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: Absolutely. And, you know, plant medicine really helped me out in that process too. I have to say like um, over time, like having Clear insight into that which was extraneous and could be kind of stripped away and wasn't really the heart of what I wanted to say or do, versus that which was much more aligned with, um, you know, the areas that I put so much focus in. Um, I think. I think that for me plant medicine was extremely valuable in that to start to, to it's like the little, um, little places in me that needed pruning were pruned and the places, and it's still an ongoing process, obviously, but the places that, you know, were areas of potential vegetal growth. Um, but maybe it hadn't been treated properly over the years, like um, plant medicine has a way, I think if we work with it properly, um, it has a way of really starting to repattern and and regrow the individual along their strengths. And, And that's something that I've found incredibly valuable about it. So I just wanted to say that because it's definitely been an integral part of the process too. And, um, like you're saying, I think, you know, I mean, sometimes they're like, people who come up to me and they're saying like, wow, this really feels like kind of a new art form, right? Like the way that you're doing podcasting with like musical storytelling and this kind of thing. And I didn't set out in any way to like start a new art form. And I actually don't think it's a new art form. I think it's a reconnection to something much older and and bardic, which is the way that stories were traditionally told, right? With musical accompaniment. Um, but for a lot of The only reason I'm saying this Is that for a lot of artists I think I think we're in an era Where we need Cracking open Of the existing art forms I mean mm-hmm. I've talked to, I've talked about this On the podcast Like When rock and roll First came Right Rock and roll Caused riots Like rock and roll called, Caused people To lose their minds And you know Throw their undergarments On stage <laughs> And like You know It sent people Into ecstatic states It upended social orders This kind of thing now you hear all those like classic rock songs when you're you know at target and it's playing on the like yeah. the, the 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 shopping network soundtrack and this kind of stuff it it in its recognizable familiar form right has lost a lot of its trans induction capability um a lot of its ability to launch people into ecstasy and rapture so i think that we're at a time when we like if if the individual artist's fear is like I'm doing this thing, but I don't really know if, you know, anyone else is doing it and it's kind of weird. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking about these incredibly innovative singers like Snow Raven and Vimy and people like this. Um, you know, I think we need people breaking the mold of existing art forms and saying, okay, like if the norm has been a three minute song, let's do a 90 minute song. Like if the norm has been, um, to tell a story in this way, like, you know, who says you can't put scholarly quotes with uh, drone music underneath them and turn them into some type of visceral experience. Right. Which is what I'm trying to do. It's like, who says that you can't um, mix influences in order to crack something open into new possible artistic realities that um, take people into spaces that they'd never imagined before. And, you know, for me, it's like, um, in an age uh, you know, there, we are inundated with the written word, the digital written word, the printed written word, but mostly the digital written word. And I appreciate the written word and I admire it, right? But I think that because of the absolute deluge, the informational flood of writing, right? I think we need something more direct, more visceral. I think we need to um, get back to the promise of the bard, which is the, the promise of um, acoustic entry into uh, altered states where we can really feel the story and feel it into our bones. So I encourage anyone who's listening, who's like, how do I weave these things together? Weave the, Weave them together. A podcast, quote unquote, is like you with a blank slate and you can put as many layers and textures. And, you know, I was talking to someone over the other day, and they were like, yeah, we're probably going to start hearing like knockoff emerald style <laughs> podcasts soon. And I'm like, great, do it, do it. Like, you know, find those blank slates that allow us to take all of those varied textured threads and weave them into something unpredictable and new and unexpected, or Mm. unpredictable and re-emergent and unexpected. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that people think that the Emerald is breaking new ground, just, I mean, shows uh, maybe that they haven't been exposed to anything like that, but maybe it's because I grew up in Canada with the CBC and these Mm. uh, very elaborate uh, radio productions. Oh, cool, yeah. uh, yeah, that would have commentary, interview, um, uh, quotes—you know—all woven together with, with music and things like that. So, for me, I just thought, oh yeah, this feels familiar, but it's mm. uh, it's covering topics that I'm really interested in that I I, um, I don't hear enough about. So,
1: yeah, and there was like a time period where that kind of radio format, I think, was really being explored. Well, and obviously when you make everyone a podcaster, then all of a sudden, <laughs> like, you know, a lot of the podcasts out there are unedited, just people talking and, and, and no sound editing whatsoever. And those can be great too. I listen to conversational podcasts too. I'm reminded actually, this is a like memory coming out of this conversation, but I'm reminded of when I was like about, um, 11, 12 years old, I, I listened to a whole fictional um, like it was on cassette tape series called like The Fourth Tower of Inverness Um, and it had like all these multiple voices on it and music underneath it and everything and I remember it's funny I hadn't thought about this in years I went home with my little cassette recorder um, and started to I added on to the story. So I started to tell that story and then like the, I didn't even have a four track recorder. So I had two cassette recorders. So one of them was playing music while I was talking. And so that was what I was using to, to mix it. But I was like talking over music and storytelling through it. And <laughs> like, I hadn't thought of that in all these years, of, like creating the podcast and everything. I hadn't thought of that in many, many years. Um, so I think like in that, audiobook format in that storytelling radio format, there is a lot of precedent for, um, that type of musical storytelling. And it's actually, it's something I'm going to ex- be exploring a lot more because I'm going to be launching a fiction series of original fiction that's told in this bardic musical way. Um, mm. and that's coming within the next few months, I would say we'll see, <laughs>
0: one man show yeah (laughs) um well you know that's really interesting i mean that is just another case like you um adding on to this existing like radio play or whatever it was and bouncing tracks to a cassette Mm -hmm. recorder i mean that to me is just more evidence for hillman's idea of the acorn you know which he got Mm -hmm. from uh the neoplatonists and all that but like the the pattern was already there and mm. it just took you like 40 years to totally. like, get aligned to the pattern or something, you know?
1: Yeah, and the thing that happened with me and, you know, if we're, I guess, you know, we're talking a lot of personal story today, um, but the thing that happened with me is I went down a, a writing rabbit hole for quite a while. Um, and obviously I still write a lot because the podcast episodes have, you know, a good amount of writing to them but I went down a writing rabbit hole in, in which I decided that I wanted to focus a lot of my creative energy on like getting published in this kind of thing. Hmm. And it took me a long time to realize like, you know, that, that acorn, that pattern was like the, 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 for me anyway, the um, that I tended to write rhythmically and I tended to write in a way that was really ultimately meant to be spoken -hmm. And that, like, people coming from a literary background weren't attuned to the style I was writing in. They called it repetitive quite often. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear that I repeat myself quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's interesting because in all of the bardic traditions, things are repeated a lot, and they're repeated a lot because it's it's
0: oral, and yeah, it's done for emphasis and also for retention. I think
1: right for retention Mm -hmm. and also not just emphasis, but it's really how like the vibration starts to grow. Yeah. It's
0: like mantric as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it took me a long time to realize that my strengths (laughs) were not necessarily in the abstract written word. They were in the direct sonic transmission. Right. And, and I think this is interesting in terms of the overall subject matter that the podcast tackles, because really what I'm seeking to inspire in people is like, and again, don't get me wrong. Written words are great. I love I love a good book, right? <laughs> As you
0: Obviously. Can,
1: yeah. <laughs> As you can tell by, by looking behind me, and this is just my office stash for episodes that I'm working on, not my, own, my home library. But like, you, there is a profound difference between the word that is a symbol for something else that you then visualize or think of when you, um, uh, you know, look at a page And the written word as a living breath force sonic reverberance that leaves a person's mouth and travels through the air and vibrates the tiny little mechanisms in their ear and then travels as neural salts into the brain and right that resonance is is it's not replicable by anything else there's a power to the spoken word that's not replicable by anything else and it took me you know i started out on that road um, and then it took me a whole <laughs> middle like period. You said,
0: you, yeah. Well, you talked about your life as a spiral, right? Yeah. Like, it took me so a whole spiral. It is
1: totally to yeah. realize that that's where I needed to focus.
0: This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at Patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.